1: The Civil War brought revolutionary change to the United States, most notably in abolishing the slave labor system, but also in ways less visible from today's perspective. One of these, according to Professor David K. Thompson, was financial. The methods used by the federal government to fund the war were unlike those of any previous American war and were so successful that they revolutionized the country's finance. He describes this in Bonds of War. How Civil War Financial Agents Sold the World on the Union. We'll talk with Professor Thompson tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. O W I C Z G at ECU dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the usual location, the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Home of the Pirates, who did not win last week, but are still having a good football season here in the autumn of 2022. But I'm not speaking for the Pirates. I'm not speaking for the school or for anybody else. And likewise, my guest speaks only for himself, as we always do on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it is the autumn of 2022, the middle of November. Our history department here is looking for a new department chair. I mentioned this last week, and I'll throw it out there in case you're in the academic world and interested in a new opportunity. Our current interim chair has just released the schedules for uh, teaching in the spring, and I uh, well, they, they've been out for a little while, but we're we're confirmed. I discover I'm teaching four classes this spring. Uh, Which is a lot Uh, that normally what a beginning assistant professor might teach and I have been here 200 years now Uh, But it was explained to me since the I'm teaching a Civil War course for graduate students and another one for undergrads and I will teach them all in the same room at the same time Uh, They'll all hear the same lectures and discussions and then I'll meet separately once a week with the grad students uh, that doesn't count as two courses, that counts as only one. It's really one and a half, if you ask me. Uh, but uh, I applaud the interim chair for being willing to assign such a schedule, uh, knowing that I'm on the search committee for the actual chair hiring. Uh, if, if the current chair wants to be a candidate, uh, they are not doing any currying a favor, and I, I applaud that moral rectitude on his part. Um, I also applaud East Carolina University for an announcement I saw today that uh, the university is entering a partnership with Mr. Beast. And if you do not know Mr. Beast, then you need to ask someone younger than yourself who watches YouTube, and they will tell you uh, that Mr. Beast is a creator of YouTube videos, uh, a lot of YouTube videos. You may... Assume that I am the most prominent uh, social media figure in Greenville, North Carolina with the tens of thousands of uh, hits that, that shows get every month, uh, sometimes 50, 60,000 hits. Uh, who could be more popular here in, in Greenville, North Carolina? Mr. Beast is more popular. He has a YouTube channel with over 100 million subscribers. Uh, He is the most popular person on YouTube and has a big company that produces this content, 125 full-time employees, makes millions of dollars, and gives much of it away. Philanthropy is a lot of what he does. He makes videos of giving his money away that are quite entertaining. Um, So uh, ECU has entered a, a, a partnership where they're going to offer a certificate program to train people in creating videos on YouTube uh, so that when people like Mr. Beast go to hire someone to work with them, instead of guessing if this person has any skills at all, that person can flash a certificate that I took a course or series of courses at an actual university to train me in whatever it is uh, uh, that people do when they make YouTube videos. Uh, It's a forward-looking thing to do. It's got me thinking, is there some way I could Cash in on this? Uh, is there a certificate program I could start for the skills that I have, such as owning too many books, uh, talking about historical inaccuracies in movies while the movie is on? Uh, but most of you, I'm sure, have those same skills also, so uh, you wouldn't need to take the course. I'm not. I don't know if I'll be able to come up with something. Uh, well, as I said a moment ago, uh, Pirates lost last week in football a game they could have won. Uh, my alma mater, Michigan, won again. They are still undefeated, heading toward uh, a collision with that team from Ohio, and uh, and so on. But we're not here to talk sports. We're here to talk civil war, uh, not just today, and actually not next week either, because uh, next week is Thanksgiving here in the United States. No, no live show on November 23rd. But we've got a few more shows before the end of the semester. Uh, Brad Gottfried will be here on November 30th with uh, his new book comparing the Antietam and Gettysburg campaigns. Donna McCreary, an old uh, friend from the Lincoln world, a Mary Lincoln presenter, will present the distillation of her lifetime of study of Mary Lincoln in a book called Mary Lincoln Demystified. And uh, Gary Gallagher, well-known to us all. We'll be back on the 14th of December to discuss his new edition of Bruce Catton's Army of the Potomac Trilogy. That'll give us all an excuse to reread one or more of those delightful volumes, ending with The Stillness at Appomattox. So, lots coming up. We'll have great shows uh, in January. Hampton Newsome, among others, will be with us. And you can follow that all at www.impedimentsofwar.org where, by the way, you can get a T-shirt, a Civil War Talk Radio T-shirt. I'm wearing mine right now, uh, one of mine, and since you're listening, you should be wearing yours. You should be dressed appropriately also. Uh, And with the holidays coming up, you should outfit everyone you know in Civil War Talk Radio gear, Or get them a coffee mug, or even if you are desirous of showing your support, uh, yet cheap as can be, you can just get a refrigerator magnet. Uh, All of these, go to impedimentsofwar.org, and there's a a link to the commerce site where the merch, as the kids call it, is available uh, for Civil War Talk Radio. And in the near future, we'll have a new t-shirt. We'll update the current version with a new image. Uh, For the year ahead, maybe we'll get that out in time for the holidays. And you can have two Civil War Talk Radio t-shirts. Well, tonight's book, I want to say, uh, truly educated me on the subject of finance in the Civil War world. So much so that as I was reading it, feeling I began to understand how bonds work, that I went ahead and bought myself a Series I U.S. savings bond uh, this morning, actually. It was something I'd been meaning to do for a while. I've got some funds in a money market account that were earning 0.0000001% interest. But I kept hesitating on actually buying a bond. Uh, But by the time I finished reading Bonds of War by David Thompson, I felt confident enough to act. It's good this doesn't happen every week on Civil War talk radio. If I'd read... Books about Civil War medicine, for example, and then see if I can amputate someone's arm. That would not be good, but uh, but finance, yes, it, it worked out. Uh, hopefully, uh, so let's find out what this book is about. Uh, again, the title is Bonds of War: How Civil War Financial Agents Sold the World on the Union. Uh, David Thompson is the author. Professor Thompson, are you there? I am here,
3: Jerry. Good evening
1: good evening and uh see david do you, do you go by dave david uh d man I, I do Is both it?
3: to be honest i i <laughs> i settled in this middle career of life on dave i feel like a bit more but it's interchangeable
1: well well, well I'll, I'll i'll flex back and forth then Let, let's start with your background i'm always curious about people's educational backgrounds uh and especially because uh, I, I gather that you were one time a polar bear of
3: Bowdoin College. I was indeed, yeah. Once, once upon a time, uh, from Maine originally, and, and went to Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine, as well.
1: I, my older daughter graduated from there in twenty fourteen. Did you, by any chance, overlap with some twenty ten to twenty fourteen?
3: <laughs> okay, so I didn't overlap with twenty fourteen but um, okay. not terribly far off from possibly overlapping, just a little bit. Okay. Just
1: to, uh, yeah. I was looking at reading your, your record here, and I thought, you know, he could have graduated in 2010, then he would have been a senior, she would have been a freshman, they would have seen each other on campus. Uh, but, um, but a wonderful school. I'm, I'm, I'm always uh, uh, happy to, uh, to visit there and, and do that every summer. Uh,
3: did you study Civil War history while you were there? I did. I mean, that was frankly the one of the driving factors for why I went there. I've always I've had a deep love of history for a long time, and the Civil War in particular. Uh, going back, I did a report in eighth grade. I will never forget on the state of Maine at the Battle of Gettysburg, and I think a lot of folks associate Joshua Chamberlain, Little Round Top, but there's a whole lot more going on uh, when it comes to the state of Maine at the Battle of Gettysburg, and it kind of sprang from there. And so I I went to Bowdoin and uh, took every history course I possibly could. I worked in the history department for my work Mm -hmm. study, and I worked in the special collections as well and got to look at Civil War collections. So I kind of really ticked every box that a history nerd could possibly tick uh, as an undergrad.
1: That that sounds like a great opportunity there. You're right about uh, uh, Chamberlain not being the only— moment for Maine at, at Gettysburg. This summer, I, I uh, or this fall, I should say, I led a, a tour of uh, uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours tour called This Hallowed Ground, and we spent several days at Gettysburg, and there were uh, a couple of fellows from Maine, from, from way down east, uh, down mm. at the Canadian border, and we made a point of going on the battlefield to spend an afternoon with them uh, looking specifically for Main related monuments and and uh, found a large number of them. It was it was a great, very pleasurable afternoon to spend with them and uh, uh, share their enthusiasm for for the state and for the uh, for its participation there. Uh, I want to talk about your book. I want to start just by saying that your acknowledgments at the start of the book, which is where we should start are among the most detailed acknowledgments I may have ever read. I kept looking for my own name in there, even though you and I have never met, um, thinking you might get to me also. Uh, uh, but it's true that no book is, is done by the author alone, is it? It,
3: it is uh, very, very true. And I, you know, I, to this day, there's one or two names that I know flip through the cracks, and I can't tell you how many times I read that list over and over again. Mm-hmm. To make sure that I, 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 I didn't omit someone. Um, and unfortunately, that's just sometimes it happens. But uh, no, it was a village of fellow Civil War historians, um, financial historians as well, uh, mm-hmm. who helped me kind of guide this project along, starting as a dissertation at the University of Georgia and then making its way into the final project of, of the book, Bonds of War. So I just wanted to try to—I I remember in grad school always looking at the acknowledgments uh, for a variety <laughs> of reasons, and I just wanted to make sure that I uh, didn't omit anyone if possible, because it really was uh, a, a group effort, I'd like to think, even if they didn't realize it. They were wonderful sounding boards from time to time.
1: Well, it, it is great to read those and, and to see names of people— that one knows. I enjoyed reading yours and seeing the names of people who've been on this show, and 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 it does give a sense of what an interconnected network the Civil War scholarship world is, and and how much uh, people owe to one another. So so that was was good to see. Um, the book that describes how the Union funded its war effort, and I recall from a very useful paragraph in James McPherson's uh, Battle Cry of Freedom, uh, reading many years ago sort of quick summary that you can fund a war by uh, taxing the people or paying for it right now or you can sell bonds, borrow from the people and or from other institutions or countries and pay them back later or you can just print print money fiat money uh and sort of not pay for it at all but uh we know that if you print too much you get inflation and you start out with a a chapter with the wonderful title a thousand dollar breakfast did what was was that one of the reasons why the civil war was not entirely funded with with greenbacks
2: yeah
3: I, i think in part you know you alluded to this uh in the intro that you know previous wars for the United States from a financial standpoint are in just such a smaller scale.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: they had, they, you know, we, I think, you know, if we know anything about say revolutionary war finance, you might think of the continentals, right. And the rampant inflation that we see during the revolution. And, and that always kind of lingers in the minds of financial planners uh, for future conflicts for the United States and in general. So it was, once they start to realize this is not going to be a brief war, that it's going to cost a tremendous amount of money, uh, bonds are really, frankly, the only way that they could go because there was that, that real fear. I mean, you mentioned that thousand dollar breakfast line by secretary of the treasury, Salmon Chase, which was done as a threat to New York mm-hmm. City bankers, um, which went over about as well as you might think in a room full of people who would be concerned about something like inflation. Uh, and, and the realization kind of is, is readily apparent that bonds are going to be the way that this uh, war can be funded, but so it's going l- to re- – yeah. It, well, let, me, let me jump in because I, I want to ask
1: you about bonds, but we're going to take a short break. Sure. We're going to come right back to talk more with our guest tonight, David K. Thompson. He's the author of Bonds of War, How Civil War Financial Agents Sold the World on the Union. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, this is Civil War
0: Talk Radio.
3: Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ECU e d u that's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u dot e-d-u now back to civil war talk radio
1: and welcome back to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich talking tonight with david k thompson author of bonds of war how civil war financial agents sold the world on the union and we were just beginning to discuss how the war had to be funded by the federal government uh, primarily using bonds on a scale never before attempted in american history and david one of the things that i would found interesting early on in the book was the reminder that uh, states like indiana and illinois had defaulted on state bonds back in the 1840s uh, I remember learning this from reading about Abraham Lincoln, but it didn't realize uh, until you brought it out here how much that experience affected the way Americans thought about bonds uh, and, and borrowing money.
3: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, this is a, a topic that I'm exploring now as a, as a new book project. It's looking at the mm. state debt default. In the 1840s, because interesting, uh, it, it permeates kind of all of American life, and and critically, uh, you know, the context of the war itself. It's also an issue for international financial support. You have a lot of European countries, uh, banks, and their clients who get burned. Frankly, in the 1840s, um, some of these states, you know, fully repudiate, meaning they never pay back that debt to the present day. Mississippi being kind of the classic example. So mm-hmm. uh, there's this real kind of apprehension on the part of some to possibly buy these bonds, uh, realizing that you're talking about a civil war. And so what happens if they lose? Uh, and, and, you know, as 1861 progresses and you have some military setbacks for the United States, uh, that is not a far-fetched idea. And, and it's mm-hmm. a great concern uh, for many uh Chase especially, who's trying to finance this thing, that he has to convince New York City bankers to buy these bonds uh, to then sell on a secondary market to their clients. But also those New York banks have deep ties to the South. So there's this in- finance is an interconnected web, and I always like to view it that way, and everybody's kind of ensnared in this web, um, whether they think they are or not, whether they're active investors or not. Uh, in the 19th century. And I think it plays a large role in kind of the pivoting that we'll see occur with the bond sales to, to the masses on a Democratic kind of mass scale.
1: So when when Chase first, you say he goes to the New York City bankers, it reminded me of the, the apocryphal Willie Sutton quote, you know, why go to the New York City bankers? Well, because that's where the money is. Um, that, that that's how... say, the War with Mexico had been funded with with loans uh, marketed through the banks who have the money, who are in New York, or lesser extent Boston or Philadelphia, and Chase does that in 1861, why doesn't that
3: work for the Civil War? And there, you know, it's, again, it's an issue area of scale, Mm -hmm. so... Chase is making predictions, right? Chase doesn't have a financial background. It's really important right. to know. So there's a learning curve for him as well. Uh, and he's, depending on who you read, he is amenable to feedback and, and advice <laughs> on how he should be conducting himself and at other times less uh, so. But these New York City banks are only willing to contribute so much. Uh, and so they put in $50 million and then... Uh, they scraped together part of another $50 million commitment, and they had originally committed to $150 million in total. And by the third batch of $50 million, the New York City bankers, towards the end of 1861, say, you need to look elsewhere. Um, we're not going to put more money into this. Uh, again, there there's concern. There's a bit of hedging, frankly. They're trying to figure out who might win this war. Uh, and... What debt may or may not be honored on the other side of it. So you don't want to be too in indebted, if you will, to one side that you think may not honor that debt.
1: So when you say they're putting in fifty million at a time, just to be clear for for listeners and for me, frankly, that they're not donating this money to the federal government. They are buying federal debt that the federal government. They're, they're lending yeah, money sorry to the about federal that. government. Yeah. So, so they're yeah, lending this, this, is, this money, yeah, this is not a gift <laughs> right uh and there there is only so much uh, uh when when we say money, we're talking about gold that that there is no yeah, species, national currency, species, yeah okay correct so by eighteen by December of eighteen sixty one there's a a suspension of specie payments, the banks stopped paying out gold it, it, that means they've lent enough of their gold reserves to the government. They don't have enough in their vaults that they're not going to give it to their own customers anymore. Is that correct?
3: Correct. Yeah. And there's, I mean, in some instances, we have a couple of banks where that's very much the case. Like they literally don't have it anymore. In others, Mm -hmm. they're just being cautious. But Hmm. uh, there is a sense on their end that their, their reserves are reaching a point. Um, there, there are certain federal regulations at this time in terms of species reserve. Um, but more importantly, there's state species reserve regulation.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and New York has a pretty high threshold. Uh, and so if we're talking about New York banks being kind of important in all of this, as they are, uh, they they are merely being uh, cautious as well. Um, and I'd like to thank personally that this is also an effort on the part of these bankers, who, by the way, have gone to D.C., they've met mm-hmm. with people on Capitol Hill, they've met with Chase and said, you're doing this wrong, uh, effectively. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a—it's kind of a, a taunt towards Washington to say, you figure it out, falls in mm-hmm. your court now, um, and trying to light a bit of a fire underneath Congress.
1: So if if nothing is done, if the banks stop paying out gold, they don't have enough and they don't have enough to give, to to lend to the government, then the government can't meet its debts, but also the economy itself slows down. People can't get
3: capital out of banks to start businesses with or, or, or Correct. buy yeah, I new mean, land. A, and, and effectively, yeah. by the end of 1861, the northern economy, the U.S. economy, is slowly grinding to a halt. So
1: that is one reason why we have the Legal Tender Act. And I was sort of surprised, reading your account, how uh, how quickly Congress got on board with the economy grinding to a halt because there's no no nothing to exchange anymore. There's not enough gold in the vaults. Uh, it seemed like like this revolutionary step of having the government print green pieces of paper and say these will count instead of gold. Uh, People got on that pretty quickly.
3: Yeah, I think uh, you know there there were certainly uh, politicians in the 1850s who had this aspiration already mm-hmm. in place that this was something that they deemed as the future. Um, and what you see is members of Congress point to kind of the, you know the exigencies of war, right? They're going to use mm-hmm. this phrase, mm-hmm. and that this is the means by which we can accelerate this process of creating in national currency, as you point out, green, uh, has the name greenbacks in the Legal Tender Act. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's important to my story, of course, but I think one thing we tend to overlook when we talk about the Legal Tender Act is that it also includes a fairly massive bond issue um, mm-hmm. of, the, of the 520 bonds uh, that, that tends to get kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit. Uh, and they're critically important. Um, Because it's these 520 bonds that become the first, really, I would argue, kind of uh, mass-sold bond issue during the war itself. So why are they called 520s? They're called 520s because the federal government can call them in, recall these bonds after five years, but they mature in 20 years. Uh, so that the max out on them is 20 years out. So the 5 to 20 range is the year range. And so they start to be referred to as 520s. They have a 6% interest rate, uh, which is a fairly high interest rate. Yeah. When we're talking about sov- sovereign debt during this time period. Um, about twice as much as you might see other nations, uh, with in terms of interest rates. So it's a very appealing interest rate as well for those that would be in the know.
1: So this is where we get to our our main character, uh, if if there is one in the book. Uh, how is the government going to sell the 520s s, in order to get the money they need, um, and and Jay Cook shows up.
3: Yeah, Jay Cook uh, was uh, indirectly how I came to this this topic. Mm-hmm. I originally. I uh, thought I was going to do a dissertation on uh, religion in the Civil War, and I was in a manuscript collection, and I came across a person writing a minister, and they're talking about bond sales, and they're talking about <laughs> cuts and commission, and I'm wondering, what are they talking about? And I finally figured that it's Civil War bonds, and I'm down the rabbit hole I went, and on the other uh, side is Jay Cook. Uh, who is a, a fascinating character in his own right. I think if anybody knows of Cook, they associate him with the Panic of 1873 and mm-hmm. kind of railroad speculation, railroad fever. Uh, but in a previous life during the Civil War, he's really kind of the, the bonsar, uh I'd argue, kind of the financial whiz. Uh, he gets an exclusive agency from the federal government because what he presents for at least the United States is a radically new vision in how you might sell bonds that bonds don't just run through banks uh, mm-hmm. from wealthy bank to wealthy 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 client excuse me uh, they then make their way to the masses um, something that we personally more often associate with 20th century wars for the United States how they finance World War one World War two Cook mm-hmm. is laying that out during the civil war so
1: He arranges for these bonds to be sold, they say, not just to banks, but but directly to the public?
3: Yeah. Um, Cook is going to essentially raise an army of uh, what I would consider traveling salesmen. Hmm. Uh, By the end of the war, it's about 3,500 in total, is is our best guess, in terms of the quantity of these traveling salesmen who are going to move from town to town. Um, Some of them have deep ties to their communities. Uh, They are well-respected. And they are the ones that pitch these bonds to the populace writ large. Uh, And they receive a sales commission as part of this process. They get a cut of what Jay Cook gets from the federal government, which, by the way, is actually not that much money uh, in the grand scheme of things. And so his first test is this $500 million bond issue of 520s. And so uh, it takes a few months to kind of build up the infrastructure. But in time, Cook, who is a financial nobody, really, at the time of the war, he has a very small banking house in Philadelphia at the beginning of the war, he's going to build out this network. He's going to rely on some other banking institutions to help him as well, but also this traveling salesman network and a huge PR campaign of really championing. and and calling on the people that one form of patriotism is investment Um, and that you can actually make money off the war if you're doing something like investing. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's uh, just akin to having someone go and fight in the war. Um, Profiteering on things like shoddy rifles, right? very much frowned upon during the Mm -hmm. war, but quote-unquote profiteering if you're giving money to the federal government to help finance the war, uh, in his mind is justified and he kind of cultivates this this rationale behind
1: it. The, the advertising fascinated me. I mentioned in the introduction I bought a savings bond today yeah. and I'm looking at the website and reading the frequently asked questions and trying to make sure I'm doing the right thing and I understand how this works and then I'm reading your book and he's got a pamphlet that's basically a frequently asked questions pamphlet with uh, yeah. the farmer, you know, well, how how much money yeah. do I need to get started? You know, can I redeem it? How, how does the interest work? All the same things that I wanted to know in the 21st century before investing in the U.S. government. And here's Jay Cook answering them for farmers in 1863. It was brilliant.
3: Yeah, and I mean, full disclosure, the farming one, he actually creates. It's fictional. Um, oh, yeah. But yes. there are I, other stories. Right. That, yeah, there are other stories that he will... Uh, convey and relay to the Mm -hmm. public that are real. We actually have the letters of people writing into him. You know, I pooled Mm -hmm. together money with my friends in rural Michigan, and and we went and bought bonds. And we did it because it's the right thing to do, and it's a way to support the Union um, in the war uh, against the Confederacy and things like that. And, you know, some of them I'm rolling my eyes thinking, I don't know if this is real. And then I come across the actual letter, and I say, okay, well, this one actually (laughs) is real. Um, you know, this is not cook kind of manufacturing this. Um, and it really is cook by the way, for the first half of the war, Mm -hmm. we say PR and public relations. It's him. He has one guy who helps write copy with him. But after that, it's only in the back half of the war that they hire a firm in New York city to kind of take over the marketing of these bonds.
1: Wow. Well, the, uh, I mean, this is just a, a fascinating story. When you say you found the letters, that was a question I wanted to ask uh, about uh, the evidence that you present for the the bonds being bought by very small investors. What was what was the minimum investment someone had to make?
3: So you could buy a bond for fifty dollars okay. at this time, which is still nothing to snuff at, right? Your Annual income for an American at this time is a little over $300 is the average Mm -hmm. annual income. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you could also finance them. So you could purchase a $50 bond typically with 10 installment payments uh, in order to make it more affordable Mm -hmm. uh, for you and, and to actually make it so that the masses, quote unquote, are buying these things. Uh, And, you know, one of the the richest sources that I had was from the National Archives. There's an organization called the Bureau of the Public Debt, where all the bond registry information is kept. Uh, And all that material, it's 714 volumes. All of them are at the (laughs) National Archives in College Park, Maryland. And I feel like I've looked at all of them uh, at one point or another. Well, I mean, it shows the detail in the book, and
1: and listeners, it's not a. It's this book is not a seven hundred and fourteen volume uh, work. This is uh, two hundred pages of text, approximately. Which you mentioned, uh, Dave, This was a dissertation originally, and uh, it's just been a wonderful turn in the dissertation world in the last twenty years to stop writing five hundred page dissertations and start making them, uh, or at least books that come out of dissertations and make them at a level where somebody can actually read them and and still lead a life. Uh, This is a very accessible book, for one, on a topic that people might consider technical. Uh, So we're going to talk more about this and about what happens in the rest of the war with Jay Cook and the uh, funding of the American war debt. Our guest tonight is David K. Thompson. He's the author of Bonds of War, How Civil War Financial Agents Sold the World on the Union, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network that's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with David K. Thompson, author of Bonds of War, How Civil War Financial Agents Sold the World on the Union. I'm sitting here in the office that used to be occupied by my colleague, Chuck Calhoun, who spent 10 years writing a book on the presidency of U.S. Grant, easily the best book on that topic. Should have gotten him a lot of national attention and just as his book was coming out, an author who dabbled in Grant research for a couple of years came out with a biography of Grant, and that was Ron Chernow, and that sucked all the air out of the Grant balloon for Chuck's book, which is really unfortunate. Uh, Dave, I, asked, I mentioned this because this was a dissertation originally. You obviously spent years on it. Uh, and then a, a financial journalist who didn't know anything about history originally but spent a little time researching it. Uh, wrote a book on financing the Civil War, Roger Lowenstein's book. He was on the show uh, last year, early this year. And it's a fine book, uh, sort of an introduction, but uh, one of the reasons I was determined to have you on the show was that just seemed so unfair. You, you, you work all this time, and then somebody with connections in the financial journalism world, so he can get interviewed everywhere, comes out with a book on a related topic, and um, I, I, I don't like when people ask the question, how did that make you feel? Because we can all tell. Uh, so I, I won't ask that question, uh, but I'll, I'll just say, uh, how did you find out about that?
3: So Roger emailed me a couple of years ago asking uh-huh. for uh, a copy of a article that I wrote for the Journal of the Civil War era, mm-hmm. which is – it it's it, – portions really of a couple different chapters in the book itself. Mm-hmm. And so I sent it to him and, um, that was really the extent of my conversation with him ab- about it. And then, mm-hmm. uh, I honestly, I can't remember how I found, I think actually I got contacted by the press. Now I remember, okay. um, his press and and I got mm-hmm. an advanced copy of the book, um, mm-hmm. to look at. And I enjoyed it. I mean, I honestly, yeah. uh, You know, of course, nobody owns the topic. And I think if if more people are discussing this uh, period and, and, you know, Roger does, I would say, a very good job of kind of blending together the different parts of that narrative. Um, So it's not just about bonds. We're talking about income tax. We're talking about money as well. And I think something like income tax um is woefully understudied for the war and I think he does a good job of of really kind of bringing that to light this thing is a a beast when they actually have to bring it uh before Congress and try to negotiate it. So um I enjoyed the I enjoyed it. Um yeah, would I love to have some of the reviews he got. Sure. <laughs> um and uh, <laughs> it goes without saying, but um you know, it's a it's a good book and I think if again honestly if more people are looking at civil war finance and it's not just shuddering and going oh no it's numbers um, but realizing that there's some people i think that's more important and i and i know you know mine is a little different as well um, right. particularly with something like the international dimensions of the war that i get to a, a, in quite a bit of depth so i think well, we, we actually complement another quite well
1: well i think that is an extremely gracious answer um, my <laughs> doctoral advisor once said to me you don't want to have the first book on the topic you want to have the best book and and your book will certainly have legs scholars will use this for many years Uh, it it really tells an important story Uh, and one of the elements of it that you just mentioned is a foreign investment Uh, everybody who writes when, or when we read bits about bonds and sales in the Civil War, we think of American farmers and, uh, you know, homemakers buying a bond with their, their milk and egg money. But you point out that a lot of the bonds are purchased overseas.
3: Yeah, and that was a... Yeah, I, I would be honest with you, Jerry, it was a nice perk of <laughs> getting uh, yeah, some you of got some of this to research and <laughs> finding that I could... Um, go to some pretty fun places to do a little bit of research. Um, mm-hmm. And boy, going down some of these rabbit holes, I mean, some of the financial archives that exist in Europe um, are truly exceptional that the banks have managed to hold on to. And I mm-hmm. think uh, for things like this, that they haven't been tapped into enough. Uh, and it, it goes to show just the depth of some of this investment, but also surprises in my, in my mind. I mean, it, I make it pretty clear in the book That if we're talking about investment during the war, you know, people probably think London financial capital of the the Western world, it's not the world. London's not the the star of the show. Um, It's places like Frankfurt um, in in the future country of Germany that's far more important uh, in this period. And so it was really fun to kind of get into some of the different characters in Germany um, and how... The U.S. agents work there chiefly through the State Department um, and the consular office in particular in Frankfurt, a man named William Walton Murphy, who to this day, I have no idea why Lincoln appointed him to Frankfurt, Mm -hmm. but he takes it in stride and becomes a huge asset for kind of selling the war quite literally uh, in Frankfurt. That
1: was very interesting to read that. Uh, I I enjoyed your discussion on page 97 of the American Consul in Liverpool uh, uh mm. Dudley and his efforts to thwart the Confederate diplomats because that was the topic we talked on the show last week Alex Rose's new book on uh mm. on yep. the uh uh the Confederate Navy oh there's a party happening in the hallway here there we go uh the uh, uh Confederate Navy and 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 the struggle in Liverpool between uh, to raise money for both sides. so so everything ties together when you're studying the Civil War. But the interest in Europe in this, uh, y- you note especially that it's not just financial, but a lot of it is is done by networks of of related people and ideological uh,
3: allies. It, it It's more than just financial. Yeah, it's a family affair. Um, in, in, in a very literal sense, in some instances, uh, and as you point out, there's it's kind of these faith and kinship networks that really start to span across the Atlantic and help to facilitate uh, these sales uh, during the war, yes, and then just to a stratospheric degree. I mean, more than half of the U.S. national debt is held overseas by 1869, so it's only a few years after the war. More than half of it's overseas. And it's held by people literally uh, all across the globe. Uh, they have to create special bonds to sell in Japan. There's wow. bishops in South Africa that own these bonds. I mean, and I can go on and on with the examples, but they're they have clients everywhere. I mean, a New York banker sells thirty-plus million dollars worth of this debt to a bunch of Cuban clients. So it just it, it really kind of spans the globe and. and It also moves us out of just Europe too, which I also uh, enjoyed that when I, you know, you could say it's kind of a global phenomenon and really mean it.
1: And and that is interesting because, you know, we, there's increasing scholarly interest in, in making global comparisons and and looking at things that are happening in wars of national unification, not just in the United States, but in Europe uh, and in Asia. And, and, so you see more of that, but this literal financial connection of people in other countries investing in United States debt uh, during and after the war, uh, you know, was eye-opening uh, to me. the uh, The mention of a national debt is another interesting thing you discuss because there were times during the nineteenth century when the United States has no national debt; they paid everything off, and it, when people simplistically think the government is like a family, you think, "Well, I want to be out of debt. I want to pay off the mortgage and pay off the car, and that's better than owing money all the time. But the government t- has a huge debt when the war is over, and you describe arguments that say that's a good thing. It's okay for a country to have a permanent national debt. Um, and you get the arguments against it, no, then then you know current working taxpayers are funding wealthy, lazy bondholders who are collecting the interest. Right. Uh, but what's the argument for having a national debt? Yeah, that I mean, one, of that the,
3: one of the pieces is a national debt is a national blessing. It uh, was written mm-hmm. in, in the Reconstruction era, and that it, it creates a, a source of faith that others are going to have in you as an institution moving mm-hmm. forward that you will honor your debt. Um, I'd like to think it's a little bit of a modified look at Alexander Hamilton right? Um, and, and, the, and the importance of a national debt. And it, it kind of conjures up this legitimacy because uh, the reality is the United States government, you know, we, we laugh at this today, of course, but the national debt never drops below a billion dollars. And that's with a B billion mm-hmm. after the Civil War. It never goes below a billion dollars again. And for hmm. some, they say that's OK. That is part of being one of the more powerful nations in the world, Uh, and particularly as we move through the 19th century, being that major competitor for countries like Great Britain, um, and even, I would argue, Germany by the end of the century, uh, that having a debt is is okay. If there's a plan to finance it and slowly pay it off, that's okay, but you don't need to have this frantic rush to try and pay it off.
1: The 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 British regard the Americans as naive in not having or, or wanting to get rid of their debt, uh, and they they they've got a world-spanning empire. They they know how to do finance. Uh, they 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 mock the United States. But the the idea of confidence is a point you make throughout the book that that when people buy these bonds, they're expressing their confidence that the Union will win the war, the federal government will survive. And they want a a piece of that. Uh, And the way, there's a second major bond issue that you described, the the 730s in 1864, Mm -hmm. where Jay Cook comes back in and sells those also. Uh, Yeah. One of the things that really struck me was the description of of night offices, like... uh, yeah, the way, the way we have early voting for people who work, you can vote on a weekend now, uh, not have to take time off. He opens offices to buy a bond in the middle of the night for people who work all day.
3: Yeah, and it's, you ply them with free food and, and free coffee. And I uh-huh. equate it as to like telling is someone selling you a timeshare. There's a pitch. You've got to listen <laughs> to the pitch. So if you just uh-huh. want to go in and buy it, that's fine. But you also can come in and get some free food and just hear the pitch let me let me sell you on the union. Let me sell you on buying a bond. um take a seat. you either just got off work or you're about to go on um mm-hmm. so you've you know you've got a big day behind you or ahead of you, but let take a load off and let me explain to you the power of debt and why you should invest in it and I think it's a brilliant idea, and they set these things up all over um several major cities in the united states
1: and you point there were even Confederates who bought Union War debt,
3: yeah. or at least Southerners. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there are, so there are Southerners. I think there's actually a few who are legitimate Confederates. There are definitely mm-hmm. Southerners. Um, and one of my favorite letters of the, the whole batch that I read in Jay Cook's papers, which are in Philadelphia, the Historical mm-hmm. Society of Pennsylvania, he receives a letter about two days, three days after Appomattox from uh, three con- Confederate soldiers who are living in Petersburg at that point, recently paroled from Appomattox, and they asked, can we be your agent in Petersburg to sell these bonds? <laughs> and, you know, wow. it's been 72 hours. They're, they're ready just to get on on with this and, and be the, the game in town, I guess, in order That's to true. make this happen. So I, I got a good chuckle out of it. That is funny. Where's the main
1: chance? Let's let's look for that. Now there there's a lot more in this book, uh, which listeners you will enjoy reading and learning about, and maybe lead you to buy a, a savings bond yourself. Uh, but th- th- there were bits in the last in the conclusion. You talk about how in the the Reconstruction era and after that, the the demo- democratization of debt goes away to some extent. That it, once again bonds become something for the wealthy to buy. But uh, people still want to buy them, and they end up uh, not actually buying bonds, but essentially
3: betting on bonds in, what were they called, bucket shops? These Bucket shops, yeah. You're just voting on whether a stock is going to go up or down, essentially. Um, And it's it's not really until we get back into the 20th century that you start to see kind of mass democratization of bonds and stocks and, and company stock and pension plans. Uh, that start to emerge wholesale, and and World War One really spurs all of that. Right, I mean, we think of the bond
1: drives of both World Wars as something that everybody is supposed mm-hmm. to participate in, and and that's. Uh, but you show so effectively in this book how that begins in the Civil War, uh, on a scale that that maybe a lot of us didn't realize, and how it's not just within the country but but worldwide. Uh, Listeners, you will enjoy this book. Uh, David K. Thompson is the author. The title is Bonds of War, How Civil War Financial Agents Sold the World on the Union. Uh, David, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I hope we cross paths at a conference sometime.
3: Absolutely. I'd love it, Jerry. Thanks for the
1: time. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.